So I'm here this morning in New Haven, Connecticut with Doug Kaiser, who is Deputy Dean and Joseph Field Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Uh, Dean Kaiser is a nationally renowned expert on environmental law, climate change, and torts, among other areas, and he's agreed to speak with us today about some of the climate lawsuits that are winding their way through federal and state courts. So Doug, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me, Sharon. So to my mind, we've seen a burst of creativity in uh, terms of the suits by climate plaintiffs in recent years, uh, and creativity in crafting lawsuits that are designed to address the climate uh, problem and the climate crisis to hold governments and companies accountable. Uh, descriptively, I wanted to ask you first, how have we seen plaintiffs using tort law, and to use your own phrase, tort-like constitutional obligations to address these climate harms in the U.S. over the last few years? Certainly. Um, I, there's been, as you note, um, quite an explosion of activity uh, in the courts seeking to hold uh, defendants accountable for their contributions to climate change for the anticipated uh, monetary and ad adaptation needs that plaintiffs will face in the coming years. Um, and there has been a, a great deal of creativity, uh, or one might also say desperation, <laughs> among the lawyers who are charged with trying to fit um, this massive, almost unfathomably vast problem into pre-existing theories or causes of action um, within tort or uh, uh, other bodies of law. Um, I think it's important to, to kind of talk about climate change litigation in terms of two different waves of litigation, and then within the waves, different subtypes. Um, so there was an earlier um, set of cases that was brought in the mid-aughts, um, uh, cases such as the Kivalina Alaska suit against uh, a bunch of fossil fuel producers or a, sta a suit brought by the state of California against major automakers. And these were an initial wave of tort-based lawsuits um, that largely were dismissed based on grounds like standing or preemption or displacement. So in other words, um, the judges dismissed the suits before they ever really got into the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. This second wave of suits which has been happening over the last two to three years, um, is, is benefited by developments in historical evidence about emission contributions and also advancements in the science of, of kind of climate causal uh, attribution. And we can talk more about those developments. Um, but these suits um, are, uh, I would kind of group them into three major buckets. So there are public nuisance-based suits that are being brought by states and cities against major fossil fuel producers. And the public nuisance cause of action is the main part of those complaints, but they also have other theories depending on which state they're in, things like products liability or negligence. Um, then there is the set of cases brought by our children's trust including most significantly the Juliana litigation in Oregon, which is seeking to hold the federal government responsible for its violation of essentially a constitutional due process right to atmospheric stability. Um, and there's a related theory called the public trust doctrine, which is also part of that suit. And then finally, more recently, we've had these suits brought by New York and, and Massachusetts that are um, attempting to kind of assert a theory of 
securities fraud against the fossil fuel industry for basically allegedly keeping two sets of books, an internal set of books that takes climate quite seriously and an external set of books that tells investors, don't worry, we can keep burning as long as we want to burn. So in each of those different um, buckets, uh, there are, you know, as you might imagine, incredibly complicated and nuanced issues about um, whether the doctrinal elements are adequately made out, whether the plaintiffs will get to discovery and what kind of remedies they're seeking, and so on. So let me follow up on, um, you mentioned that some of the, many of these suits have actually encountered problems early in the lawsuit at justiciability doctrines like standing um, and, and other hurdles so that we're not yet hearing the merits of the, of the suits. What kinds of hurdles are they facing? Can you say a little bit more about why it's difficult for some of these plaintiffs to uh, establish standing, um, why maybe they're experiencing uh, displacement or other types of preemption-related doctrines? What makes it so hard to get past that initial hurdle? Well, I mean, there's sort of a high church and a low church version of my response. <laughs> um, the high church version is that, um, particularly in federal courts in the United States, the courts are constrained by an understanding from Article Three of the Constitution about what the proper judicial role is. And so there's a cluster of these doctrines like standing, like the political question doctrine, ripeness, mootness, so-called justiciability doctrines that are designed to kind of limit the role of the courts to what is imagined to be a particular kind of dispute that's appropriate for judicial resolution and leave so-called political questions or questions of generalized public harms to the political branches, to the legislature and to the executive. Um, the problem of climate change then runs into difficulty because essentially it's, it's, it's a causally over-determined problem. All of us at the same time are both causes and victims of climate change. And so singling out any particular actor as um, the sort of appropriate defendant who can be singled out and, and, and assigned with causal responsibility and um, ordered to remedy the harm starts to look quite difficult depending on how you frame what the harm is that you're alleging. At the same time, it's hard to single out any particular plaintiffs as especially appropriate actors to bring the grievance to the court because, in a sense, all of us are going to be victims of climate change in one way or another. Now, um, the plaintiffs' lawyers in the second wave of suits have gotten a lot more sophisticated and creative in thinking about how to overcome these various preliminary hurdles. But they're still going to face what I would call the low church response to your question, which is that these are, you know, radioactive lawsuits. These are politically radioactive lawsuits. And a lot of judges um, in the last several decades have become, I would say, more conservative. And I don't mean conservative in a right-left political sense. I mean more risk-averse about the use of judicial authority in political hot-button areas. Um, so this is not the era of Brown v. Board of Education. This is an era where judges are um, kind of incremental and guarded and cautious about the use of their authority. And so being asked to take on something like the most powerful and entrenched industry on the planet um, 
you know, you're inviting a judge to a party the judge does not want to come to. <laughs> and even though, as you say, some of these plaintiffs have gotten more creative in how they're framing their cause of action and the remedies that they're seeking. So in Boulder County, where I'm from, uh, we have a lawsuit that's going on currently against uh, Exxon and Suncor. And the remedy being sought there uh, are just damages, right? Damages mm -hmm. for adaptation to climate change and climate harms, where the idea is we're not, no longer asking a judge to craft uh, a scheme to control greenhouse mm -hmm. gas emissions nationwide, cap and trade, like we saw in AEP against Connecticut, or some of these other cases, but hopefully this will make judges more comfortable with their role and make maybe make these suits look more like mm -hmm. traditional tort mm -hmm. lawsuits. Do you think that's what plaintiffs are trying to do? Absolutely. I mean, undeniably, that's what they're trying to do, and they've done a fantastic job of it. Um, I'm not, I'm still not convinced that it'll get them over the hump. But uh, I mentioned earlier developments in a kind of historical understanding of corporate contributions to atmospheric CO2 concentrations. And this has really been extremely important and valuable archival work that kind of digs through mining lease records and co corporate securities filings and all sorts of different databases to come up with estimates of what percentage of the human contribution to warming can be I sort of in a way tagged to particular corporate defendants and their predecessors. Um, and, you know, you can cobble together 25 defendants and say that they are 45% of, of post-industrial uh, human CO2 contributions. And that's designed to try to make it look more manageable, like something where the judge can say, I've got a manageable group of defendants, and they are representing a substantial share of the problem. Um, it depends on the judge buying that theory of attribution, that it's the corporation that sold the gas rather than the consumer who bought the gas who should be tagged with responsibility for the emissions. And that ties into the kind of fraud theories of, well, the reason we can, with a straight face, make those arguments is that these corporations lied about what they knew in terms of the harmfulness of their products. Um, on the remedy side, where um, cities like Boulder or um, uh, Oakland or San Francisco, uh, Imperial Valley in California, where they're, I think, quite elegantly crafting the complaints, is to say that even though they're asking essentially for money, it's not monetary damages in the way we think of tort, you know, tort lawyers on the side of the bus. Have you been injured in an accident? It's not those tort. They're asking for an equitable remedy. They're asking for the creation of an equitable trust, which is designed to help these municipalities and these states fund the adaptation needs that are inevitably facing them in the coming decades. You know, so San Francisco, we know, is going to have to move its airport, and we know that's going to be a many hundreds of millions of dollars uh, enterprise. And the, the, the argument is straightforward. The investors and managers of these companies have known for decades that this was an existential threat, and they, in fact, in the 70s had a moment when they tried to pivot, they started to pivot away and diversify their, their energy resources. And then there was a cynical decision to say, actually, let's do something different. Let's obfuscate the science. Let's uh, confuse the public policy discussion. Let's capture the regulators if we can. And let's keep pocketing the profits. 
as long as we can. And so the plaintiffs are asking to claw back ill-gotten gains. And when you put it that way, it doesn't seem that novel and scary to a judge. It seems like, oh, that's the kind of equitable remedy I've been crafting and my predecessors have been crafting for hundreds of years. And it does sound very reasonable when you put it like that. Um, of course, we have then the problem coming out of Judge Alsop's opinion in California, where when you're crafting an equitable remedy as a court, you're you're balancing benefits and harms. Mm -hmm. And Judge Alsop, of course, started talking about the benefits of all of this fossil fuel that we have been burning, the idea that, yes, there are these catastrophic harms. And the, one of the amazing things to me about that lawsuit was that he had a, a mini class forum on the climate science where he had testimony in the courtroom and, and a lot of that made it into his opinion. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, he expressed concerns that if the suit reached the merits, that any judge would have to balance the benefits of all the spraying of fossil fuels. And he talks about the, the industrial revolution mm -hmm. and building the modern, supporting the modern economy. Um, do, do you see that as a, a hurdle at the end of some of these suits, if the remedy is equitable, of judges saying, yes, the harms are enormous, but so are the benefits? And in the face of that, we're not going to uh, direct any kind of large-scale transfer of wealth. I do see that as a concern, because if you're asking, you know, on net, have fossil fuels been good for America? Well, that's a very challenging question, and it's a question that feels um, undeniably political in nature. So judges will sort of shy away from uh, that approach. But the plaintiff's lawyers are, they're not asking the judge to entertain that kind of macro balancing of on net is this good for America. In the common law, there are alternative approaches to nuisance liability that focus instead on were the defendant's activities, whether or not beneficial on net, were they posing significant concentrated costs on the plaintiffs? And in that sense, when you're asking for an equitable trust, um, you're sort of simply saying there is a massive externality to your behavior that is inequitably being concentrated on certain plaintiffs, and we'd like you to compensate that. And if you can continue to stay in business, more power to you. Right. But until we actually force you to internalize the harms you're causing, we don't know the answer to that question. So it sounds like judges have a lot of flexibility in terms of the tort doctrines that they adopt and employ in these cases, even when it comes to remedy, but throughout the lawsuit. So you've written about the, the special role of judges and advocated for for more engaged judicial decisions in cases like climate that may be an uncomfortable fit with traditional doctrines. Why are judges so important here? What is it about the role of the judge that makes them um, perhaps best suited to tackle some of these larger questions? Well, again, I can give you kind of a romanticized high church answer and then my low church answer. I mean, the romanticized answer is that the judicial role is meant to be um, one that's driven by reason and evidence and principle. Um, it's meant to be apolitical. And of course, you can never expunge politics from any sort of official decision making, but we aspire to it. We aspire to base decisions on reason, fact, and principle. And so, when you take something like climate change, which has been so radically politicized in this country, 
um, and so polluted with misinformation and deliberate um, falsehoods and so on and so on, having something like Judge Alsop's, um, you know, mini climate class in that forum is actually representing the best of the judicial role. It's sort of saying, let's clear away all the falsehoods, all the, mis, you know, the misinformation that, that's going on, and let's get the best science and figure out what do we know and don't know. Um, and judges uh, are uniquely situated to have that kind of um, truth-finding uh, mission as, as part of what they're doing. Um, and also, you know, the judicial role is designed to be the counterbalance to power. It's, it's designed to make power responsible. And when you're talking about an industry that, you know, has... $22 trillion worth of proven fossil fuel reserves in the ground that would put us above 2 degrees Celsius. So $22 trillion worth of power above the 2 degrees centigrade mark, which is owned on balance sheets, backed up by share certificates. Wow. We need all the counterbalance to power that we have available at our disposal. Um, also, the thing we forget about um, courts, and especially lowly torts, which is usually thought of as kind of like the, the ugly stepchild of the first-year law school curriculum, um, <laughs> is that when a plaintiff goes into a court, the judge has to answer. And moreover, the defendant has to answer. The defendant has to appear and give an accounting, right? And there's no other part of the government that's obligated to respond to your grievance. You know, I could call Senator Inhofe's office every day for the rest of my life and never get a call back. And if, even though administrative agencies are supposed to respond to your rulemaking petitions, as we know, they tend not to. And as we know, courts tend not to enforce those requirements. Right. Exactly. So, right. So the courts are uniquely situated in many ways to respond to this. And yet we see judges, whether for formal reasons or because of some other sort of larger anxiety around the nature of the problem, abdicating that responsibility, maybe that's maybe that's going too far, but at least not getting to the merits of these suits when they could potentially do a lot of good yeah. in this space. Uh, and, and so why? Why do we see that? Is it really just because the law doesn't fit? I mean, you've given us lots of different examples of ways in which tort law is actually a nice fit for some yeah. of these climate harms. So what is going on, do you think, what's your hypothesis um, for these individual judges? Well, I, I think some of it is dispositional. Um, you know, the, that there's a sense that this problem is massive and huge and somebody ought to be dealing with it. But the judge just doesn't necessarily think of themselves as having that capacity or having the appropriate resources to do it. And I think those are actually, like, those are views that are held in good faith. Um, there are other judges, um, you know, like our judge in the Juliana case, um, who has, you know, just incredible um, bravery, I think, bravery in saying this is an existential threat. And if the Constitution doesn't oblige the federal government to avoid the extinction of life on the planet, then what good is it worth, right? That's just, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right. but that's essentially <laughs> what's happening. And so we, we had a, a conference earlier this semester here with Supreme Court justices from around the world, and I was able to present some basic facts to them about climate change. And um, 
I kind of gave them the long paleoclimate history, which shows that, you know, we're on a trajectory in the next half century, century, 200 years to match the end Permian, you know, the 250 million years ago when 90% of life in the oceans was, was, was destroyed and 80% of life on land. And we're heading there like as, as faster than has ever happened in the history of the planet. And two of the sitting United States Supreme Court justices sort of just, they get it and they're as moved and worried as we are, but they revert to that instinctual, the legitimacy of the court is absolutely precious. We don't have the power of the purse. We don't have the power of the sword. The way, the way we maintain our legitimacy is by very targeted, careful interventions. And this one just exceeds us. And so then it comes down to, and again, this is a good faith debate. Um, it comes down to how do you best preserve the role of the courts and the legitimacy that the courts have managed to build up in you know the last few <laughs> hundred years, and that's a t it's a terrifying question because it's like we might preserve the legitimacy of the courts, but then watch the planet become unlivable, or we might try to save the planet, but in the process the courts erode and all the rights that we want to preserve erode with them. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to end, um, <laughs> and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We will post the articles that you've written on the subject on the website, but Doug, thank you so much. My pleasure.